Well, last week we kind of ended that section on divorce, and I talked to some of y'all afterwards and have thought, of course, more about it during the week. And Tim had a great point that we talked about after the class, and if I don't say it right, override me and say it right. But basically, I think the best way to look at that was Jesus, I don't think, was necessarily intentionally coming on the scene to just all of a sudden start teaching about divorce, right? We saw that the Pharisees were there, and they they came for an explicit purpose of trapping and testing him to try and trip him up and, you know, catch him off guard or as if you could, right, with God. And so they throw out this question about divorce, and I think what Tim had said just rings so true, you know, we'd gotten all the way to the point with where Moses allowed the certificate of divorce. Well, that is a world wreaked with the havoc of sin. And Jesus immediately goes back to Genesis 1. And what's true about Genesis 1? Pre-sin, right? And he was saying, here's where you got to get to, you know, pre-sin. So just think of it that way. That That's our call, right? That's kind of where we all strive as brothers and sisters in Christ is to live sinless lives, you know. So I think that's the gist of what was going on there. And uh, so right on the heels of that, though, if you'll look at Mark uh, chapter 10, we'll pick up this morning in uh, verse 13, Mark 10, 13. Um, And again, I just guess we'll just go ahead and read the whole section again down through verse 31. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not inherit it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished at him. I'm sorry. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, 
There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So starting, you know, in verse 13, this is the blessing of children I think is really an appropriate sequel to the pronouncement of the sanctity of marriage that we looked at last week and uh, kind of a natural outflow of a union, right? Um, And this is a really a, uh, after talking about marriage and this is a lovely picture of the affection that, that our Lord has for children and the tenderness that he displays towards them. And Matthew's account adds, um, with this, with the touching them, that he would also pray for them. And Luke uses the word infants there as well. So, you know, you got children and infants, and, you know, I think that's just showing us that there's a wide variety of, um, of ages involved there. I can move this thing higher. Um, everything from babies to, I think, even in one text, uh, there's uh, the word is speaking of a 12 year old. And, um, Perhaps, I, I wouldn't go there, but perhaps that's where some people get that age of accountability is 12. You know, um, some denominations confirm their children in the faith at 12 or thereabouts. Um, you know, so maybe that's where that comes from. But, you know, this isn't infants only or 12-year-olds only. Matter of fact, 12 would have been... Um, historically, help, y'all help me with this if I get this wrong, but uh, the way I understand it is 12 would have been the, there was no teenagers, what I'm trying to say, I guess, back in the, that, those times. That term is only maybe 120 years old, right? And it was probably, I'm not sure about this, but it was probably an American term that was used to uh, allow for uh, kids acting fools to be excused while well, he's a teenager. You know, you heard that before? Uh, as if that's an excuse to sin, right? Just because they're a teen. But anyway, so this is covering all ages. And we're all familiar. As I told you last week, I didn't become a, a believer till later in life, but I still knew this song. We're all very familiar with the song, <laughs> Jesus Loves the Little Children, right? I mean, that's, nobody doubts that. Does anybody remember how it goes? I'm not going to sing it. I got the lyrics here. (laughs) Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, black and yellow, red and white. They're all precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. So think if you were present, you know, and you'd, you'd heard his teaching, you'd seen him, you'd seen his love. You'd seen his power displayed. You'd, you'd, you know, you would be in awe, I would think. I don't know. I certainly would be. And you, you've heard him teach on the kingdom. You heard him speak of salvation and eternal life. Well, these people had heard that. And here he is now in their community, and they witnessed these things. I think any sensible parent would, would do whatever they could do to bring their children to him so that he could touch them and pray for them. You know, there, there, there wasn't, they weren't looking for some kind of magic to be put forth upon them. You know, um, I, 
personally, I have a problem. Uh, if, if you don't, that's fine. Um, but sometimes the altar call thing, you know, what parent does not want their kid to be saved? I guess that's what I'm getting at. Everybody does, right? I mean, and, and so I think a lot of times in, in, when there's an emotional appeal given by a preacher that we all want, you know, so we kind of force our kids to go and be saved, if you will. And I don't know that that's what was going on here other than the, here, though, that they, they saw him and they wanted their kids. You know, he's going to pray for kids and hold them and touch them. And just his compassionate care for people, right? And what do the disciples do in that text? They rebuke the people bringing the kids. And those bringing, it wasn't just moms. You know, it was dads, maybe uncles, aunts, grandparents. I've got nine grandkids. You know, I mean, you, you care for them as much. I mean, honestly, my kids don't go to, to our church here, but... When I see y'all's kids up singing, I mean, my wife and I both, I don't know what it is about kids, right? Whether it's yours or mine, we get kind of teary-eyed about it. You know, the Christmas stuff, I love that stuff to watch the kids. They're all looking for y'all out there, you know, and the ones that, I I think the, the, I better turn this off, but no, the the hit this year for me was um, Cole, Darby's son. Did y'all see him? He had his hair spiked, right? Man, he was—he never had his hair spiked. I guess, boy, he was up there working that thing the whole time. I mean, just precious, right? So, who wouldn't want if Jesus was in your midst? Who wouldn't want him to hold their child and to, you know, to pray and lay his hands on them? But you know, here are our disciples, and they rebuke the people bringing the kids. Like, get away from them. I guess they thought that they were Jesus's protectors, you know, and. And he's so busy, don't let the kids interrupt him, right? He's got much bigger things to deal with. And um, their attempt to turn the kids away, um, I guess, you know, they thought the kids just weren't important. And um, But Jesus had already rebuked the disciples a couple times. We saw in the last few weeks, the first time he foretold of his death in Mark 8, he rebuked Peter and and then uh, in Mark 9, when they were having the discussion of whoever w- was the greatest, you know, he, he got on to him then. And that's when he took the child that first time and, and put it in front of him and tenderly cared for him. And he uses Jesus, uh, he said, uh, it says that Mark, you know, that Jesus was indignant in verse 14. And that word is only used by Mark, and it's a term of strong emotion that, that denotes his pain and angry reaction to what these guys were doing. And he just says, hey, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And um, as Tim taught us when we had that passage earlier in Mark, that what he was saying is the kingdom that belongs to children and to others like them the key point of that there's no apparent importance in kids, right? They don't have any credentials that makes them qualify to be accepted into God's kingdom. Uh, The only thing that makes any of us acceptable is that God is willed to give us his kingdom, and kids understand that because they they don't even think about it. They don't understand. They don't even think about it. They just come, right? 
Jesus was talking about the qualities that children typify. What are some of those? What do you think? They're naive? Yeah. Yeah. That's why, you know, parents have to say, you know, if, if we're not home, uh, you know, don't answer the phone. Don't answer the door if you don't know who it is, right? Um, what else? Trusting, certainly. Yeah, they, what you see is what you get, right? Yeah. You know, the, the trusting, I, I just, when I was thinking about these qualities, you know, the dependence, receptivity, um, I remember when my oldest grandchild was a baby, uh, and I was pushing him in a stroller. Um, see, I, old people can remember that. He's 19 now, so that was 18 years ago. And I remember this. We were, I was at their, in their neighborhood in Marietta. They lived near Dobbins Air Force Base. And, you know, when you live near Dobbins and a plane flies over, I mean, they're so used to it, they don't even look, you know. But when you're like me and live in Woodstock, and it was a C-5A, you know, doing practice runs and, this thing, I mean, it, to me, it looked like he was only about 100 yards above the trees, you know. I mean, it was screaming loud, and, and it kind of scared me a little bit, you know. And, and my grandson in the stroller, he looked around at me. And I could have caused a problem right there. If I was looking with fright and terror, he would have burst into tears, right? And, but he, I smiled at him, and he smiled back and turned his head back around. He trusted me. He was looking to me for trust and comfort. And that's what Jesus loved about children is that's how they come, right? Um, the demand that someone become as a child calls for this fresh realization that we're utterly helpless in our relationship to the kingdom of God. We, we have to come with that, the same attitude that a child comes with, receptive, dependent, trustful. And the kingdom really can only be entered into by one who knows that they're helpless, that knows that they're small, that knows they're without claim to the kingdom, that without any merit whatsoever. I mean, that's, that's the pure definition of grace, isn't it? You know, that it's undeserved, unmerited, can't earn it, don't do anything, can't do anything to get it, even if you tried. So his action of taking them in his arms and blessing them really becomes amazing for us if you look, well, I guess for the disciples more so, if you look back in history and see the the callous attitude that prevailed at this time and frankly even today about children in many cases, right? There's a... um, one of the commentaries I read noted a, a papyrus. Um, have you ever seen papyrus? I was I got to see. I got some. I should have brought it with me. Show and tell time, right? I I was in Egypt in November, and um, once you do the pyramid thing, did you do the pyramids when you were there, Ruth? So did. I mean, this is a. It's just a joke. But how can you go all the way there and not do it, right? But I mean, it's a racket above and beyond all rackets. And so, uh, I mean, the most horrific part of the town is where you do this. I mean, it is so dirty and so nasty in this part of town. I, I mean, if I was the director of 
tourism, you know, I think I'd put some money into this area and clean it up a little bit, you know. Well, Egyptians don't have waste management, for one thing. So all their garbage is just piled. And I mean, right where you unload to get on one of these buggies to go to the pyramids is this huge garbage pile. There was a donkey standing in it eating and dogs all over the place eating in it. And anyway, at the end of the tour, the guy took us to this perfume papyrus house. Did you go to that one? And, uh, you know, take you in there. And we had some Egyptian tea and they tried to sell us some hash and, uh, you know. <laughs> Like, well, I was with Mark Shaw, you know, the uh, kind of the guru on addictions in, in our country in biblical counseling, and they're trying to peddle hash to us, you know, so you got the wrong guys. But uh, anyway, upstairs they have papyrus, and it was a shop, and, you know, of course, you, the pressure's pretty high, and you buy some, and you buy little drawings, but it's really quite interesting the way they make that stuff, but... And then that's, what, of course, what the manuscripts are written on and such. So in Alexandria, dated June 17, 1 B.C., there's a letter, this instruction from a husband to his wife who he thinks that she's giving, I guess he was out of town, I don't know, but thinks he was she was giving birth or had given birth, and he said if it's a male, let it live. If it's a female, cast it out. That's how they thought of children. So for Jesus to be taking these kids, they're like, wow, you know, this is something else. And, and that made me think of, I remember before I was a Christian, we were at dinner at some people's house one night. This was a long time ago, mid-80s probably, or early 80s. And um, I remember, I mean, I was a mean, nasty person, but I loved my kids. Um, and this guy... His, we were at dinner, and, and his kid, one of his kids interrupted him, and he was so harsh that I remember that today. You know, he, he, he told him to shut up, and then he said, son, kids are to be uh, spoken to. What does that saying go? You've heard it. Yeah, yeah, seen and not heard. And I thought, whoa, you know, um, that's harsh. But, you know, kids are... Uh, in a lot of cultures treated that way. Um, <clears throat> the commentator Barclay observes that this about this event, he says, quote, this event tells a great deal about Jesus. It tells us that he was the kind of person who cared for children and for whom children cared. He could not have been a stern and gloomy and joyless man. There must have been a kindly sunshine on him. Isn't that good? That the kids trusted him. All they had to do was look at him and trust him. And that also reminded me of a time when my, our daughter was very little, probably maybe 18 months. And yeah, well, no. Anyway, I don't know. Maybe under a year. It was her, f she was definitely under a year if it was her first Christmas. So it was either the first or second Christmas. Kit and I lived in Homestead, Florida, in the military on the air base. And um, we went to see Santa Claus like you do with all kids, right? Well, she'd been in, maybe it was, she was about 18 months. She'd been in Florida for, uh, you know, over a year. And, well, if you're, you know, the first year of your life in Florida, what is true, you've never seen anybody with gloves on, for one thing, you know, much less black boots and a bright red suit, right, and a giant beard. 
So we go to see Santa, and we put her up in his lap, and he puts his arms around her with those white gloves, and she freaked out, you know, wow, scared her to death. Jesus wasn't like that. You know, they were attracted to him and, and naturally went. So he does, I, I don't know how long all of that took. I don't know how many children were there, but I don't think he cut it short, right? And you can imagine the disciples getting all antsy, you know, and, and then, uh, you know, right on the heels of that um, time with the children, he resumes his journey towards Jerusalem. They're getting ready to set out. And all of a sudden, here you go, verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, you know, I could just imagine the disciples saying, You know, thought we were headed to Jerusalem. You spent all this time with the kids, and now this guy comes up. You know, he just finished loving on them. He's getting ready to resume. And this guy comes, it says, running kneeling in front of him. Well, a couple of things are really odd, again, understanding the culture there and kind of out of place with this. First off, Middle Eastern men of renown, and this guy, Mark doesn't necessarily call him the rich guy, but the other, the parallels do. People of renown, first off, they don't run because that means you got to gather your robe up to take off running, and now you're showing your bony chicken legs. And it's shameful for a dignified man in Middle Eastern time to be running around town with his robe pulled up showing his chicken legs. They just didn't do that. And that's, so that's odd that he would do that. And, and then he knelt before him, which, of course, would have been very odd as well because kneeling is a humble, worshipful posture. That'd be no problem for you and I, right? But who's he kneeling in front of some commentators feel like this guy was probably had something to do with the synagogue so that means you know he's kneeling in front of the man that the religious establishment that he backs is wanting to kill you know so that's kind of a problem right and and then he addresses him as good teacher you know that's a sincere tribute to the impression that Jesus had made on the guy and it, it shows great admiration. Again, that should have been a problem for this guy. It, you know, great admiration for the one who would be able to give him spiritual guidance. Now, I remember when Shane preached about this guy when he was going through the Gospel of Luke years ago. And, you know, it's an amazing thing when you've, you've often heard it said that, you know, from an evangelistic standpoint, then Jesus, he blew it on this one because here's a guy that's coming, Right. And, and this guy flat recognized his need of spiritual guidance. He knew that he didn't have eternal life. And he asked a very vital question when he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He was looking for the final thing that he could do to get this. Another commentator named Thompson said, the concept that salvation or life in its largest religious sense is something that can be won by doing any one thing or a number of things is completely false. The young man was on the wrong road. And, you know, I, again, I think that's what's wrong today in a, in a lot of situations where people are told to walk an aisle or pray a prayer for eternal life. You know, yes, some people can be saved by that, but not 
you know, that it's not an act of what you do. I guess that's what I'm saying. You're not saved by the prayer of the walk in the aisle, right? Um, Jesus comes back with a question to this guy. Why do you call me good? And he was showing him that his idea of goodness was being defined by human achievements. And that won't get it, right? This guy had a faulty idea of what was good. He thought that goodness was personal moral attainment. And as I thought about that, we do the same thing, don't we? Don't we measure goodness many times by personal moral attainment? So what are some ways that you know maybe you have or people that, that measure goodness or even measure acceptance to God by moral attainment? What do you think? He does all that. I only do, right? What else? Don't we expect people who claim to be Christians to show that they're very spiritual one way or another? Mm-hmm. Even if it's even if it's just in their the way they treat other people. Sure. Yeah. Un unjustified expectations of people. Sure. I'm not a big. Christian bumper sticker guy because most of them are so theologically whacked but there was one years ago that I kind of liked I never had one but it said um, uh, Christians aren't perfect but we are forgiven you know that was a good one I like that you you know what my favorite bumper sticker is Kit won't let me put it on our car (laughs) I saw him down in Florida one time and it had a phone number so I called it and I went by the place and got some it says life's too short to fish with a dead cricket that's a good bumper sticker (laughs) it's on the bookshelf at home so what are some more uh, moral attainments that we think are going to make us acceptable to God Oh, that's a great one. That is really good. And that seems to be, from my perspective, in the last couple of chapters that we've looked at in Mark, to really be a key point that the Lord is trying to get at with the disciples, I think, you know. And that's perhaps maybe kind of an underpinning of why he did it with the children, why he lets this guy come. The disciples, again, there they are, you know. And, and you know, that I just constantly keep going back to that really impacted me when Tim taught that section on you know, that these other people were doing this and, and the disciples got bent out of shape about it, you know, that we've really got to be careful of that. The, the knowledge puffs up. All right, anything else? You know, this guy, I mean, he saw Jesus as one who had excelled in attaining moral excellence. So his answer is, uh, Christ answers him back, no one is good except God alone. And that forces this guy to recognize that his only hope is an utter reliance on God to give eternal life, right? And he goes on to say, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. That next one's not a commandment, though, is it? Do not fraud, honor your father and your mother. Well, it's a commandment because Jesus said it, but it's not one of the Ten Commandments. So this young man, he... 
had, had framed the question on the basis of law, right? And the working of that law by asking, what must I do? You know, there's got to be something that I do. So Jesus begins and addresses him on that basis, and he gives him these commands, which really come from the second half of the Ten Commandments. Gives him the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and then the fifth. And, um, and then he adds the, and do not defraud. Only Mark mentions that, and, uh, you know, it kind of appears to be an application of don't steal and don't bear false witness. Um, so he, he begins, Jesus begins on a human relationship level. And then in verse 20, after Jesus says that, the guy comes back with teacher. Now, what's, what's going on now? He dropped the good, right? I've kept this, all these from my youth. It, you know, and it appears that he didn't ponder that at all. Boom. Yeah, no, just boom. He just, how oh, I've done that. Right? He impulsively replies that he had made the law the norm of his life and that he was confident that he had fulfilled all the demands of it. From his perspective, he was blameless. I've done it all. This eternal life, I've got it, right? And then we see in verse 21, and Jesus looking at him loved him. This look by Jesus was a searching penetrating look. Where else have we seen one of those? Well, maybe we hadn't seen it, but if you remember, I'm sure you've seen it, but not in Mark. The, the look in Luke twenty-two sixty-one when Peter hears the rooster crow, and he looks, and there's Jesus, penetrating. You know, I loved when Shane preached through that. I had never had put the timeline of that whole night together, you know, and in my mind, this is all just kind of unfolding, you know, it's this week of the passion and da-da-da. But you realize that from Thursday night of the Passover meal, yeah, that's right, right, to the crucifixion on Friday, Jesus never slept. That was just boom, 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 boom. And, and so he's exhausted. He's been, you know, hammered by these mock courts. You know, I just think of that, you know, the, the mockery of the, of the system that is trying him there. I, I just, you know, I don't know how his patience, you know, I guess, you know, he was a very patient man and, you know, just the foolishness of that. And then his dear follower, Peter, blows it too, you know, and so Jesus gives him that penetrating look. In, in this love towards him, towards this rich young ruler, Jesus shows that he felt strongly drawn to him, you know, that he, he desired the best for this guy, but he knew, right, what was coming. He showed his love towards him by showing him his deficiency, and he says to him, you lack one thing, go. He's probably thinking, all right, I can do that. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Woo, right? And then you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So he showed him that his need wasn't another personal virtue. What he was lacking was a fully devoted heart towards God. And this would be evidenced by going, selling, and giving. 
In other words, he had to tear himself loose from his earthly possessions, right? Um, why, why is that? Because I think these things have become idols in his heart. And we've got to keep in mind that idols can be anything, right? Not just our stuff. What are some things? What is an idol? Okay, yeah, anything above God, anything above and before God. Um, I know I won't be able to say this right, and I meant to write it down a hundred times this week, and I didn't, but it can also be said anything that I'm willing to sin in order to get that I want that I don't have, or anything that, I'm, uh, that I want that, I, that, that I'll sin because I don't have it. You know, like if you've got something that I want, you know, and uh, one, there's a passage in Ezekiel, I didn't look up where it is, um, but he talks about the Israelites had put right before their faces their idols, right? So if this, well, that's a poor example, I don't want my Bible to be, <laughs> that'd be a great idol to have. If this folder were my idol and, and I put it right here, what can I see? I can, I can tell Don's over there. And, you know, my left peripheral vision's a little better. But that's about it, right? All I can see is my idol. And that's what Jesus was wanting this guy to see is that he, he's blinded by his idol, right? And the last thing that Jesus asked him to do was to come follow me. And Jesus was inviting him to a life of continual fellowship with himself. That's what the answer that this guy needed. And it's the answer that we need as well. Luke 9.23 says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and and follow me. I heard John MacArthur, this impacted me so heavy. In 2003, I went to the Shepherds Conference. And John MacArthur um, was coming out with his book. um, I had it a second ago. What book came out in 2003? Uh, no, um, what'd you say? No, um, hard to believe. That was it. Good job. She gets the bonus. You get the McDaniel Fish Camp bumper sticker. And he preached a series of sermons on this. And I'll never forget, he started to unpack that, what deny yourself means. And he said, he, he said that it means that you have to completely disassociate with you. That you have to get to the point to where you realize that you are your worst enemy. You have to get to the point to where you realize that if you thought of the most despicable person on this planet, you know, whoever pops into your mind, that you would never, ever want to hang out with that guy or girl. That's you, right? You have to realize that you are your worst enemy. And isn't that, that just really helps me. When, and I mean, I can look at my life and I know when I'm not walking in obedience to God, it's because Tim's in the way. And I got to deny that guy. I got to get rid of him. So how did this guy respond when Christ hit him with that? Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. The only other time in the New Testament that word that's translated from the Greek disheartened is used in Matthew 16, 3, and it's applied there to the gloomy appearance of the stormy skies. 
Isn't that good? The, the Vines Dictionary says it's to have a gloomy, somber appearance. You know, this guy, deep gloom came over him, and he went away. It appears from the text that he didn't say a word. He just walked away, right? And uh, another commentator, W. Graham, said he wanted God, but not at the cost of losing his gold. He wanted life, but not at the expense of luxury. He was willing to serve, but not sacrifice. And, you know, it was all about the heart, right? And we have to guard our hearts. Um, I'm reminded of Proverbs 4.23, guard your hearts with all diligence, for from them flows the springs of life. You know, and if we aren't careful and guard our hearts, then we're going to be like that guy, and we're just going to walk away in disobedience. Well, what... By, because of his stuff, yeah, 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 and you know, contrast that with the attitude of the children, right? That came, they came innocent with nothing, and here this guy comes inquiring with everything in the world, and he couldn't part with it, you know. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. But then when he tells them <clears throat> to uh, sell all this property and give it to the poor and come follow him, it takes their mind back to the <clears throat> part of the commandments. The commandments were focuses on God. Right. Yeah, and that's that's a great point because I mean God knew what He was doing when He gave those, right? And that's why the God part is first, as you said. You know that. Because if you're not right with God, you're certainly not going to be right over here with other men, yeah. right? Yeah, Bob. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. And, I, and it's because I thought I knew where the verse was. I don't. Um, it's in John. I know that. Um, 
you know, where it says that Jesus knew the hearts of, of the men that were there. So he knew this guy's heart, right? And um, there's a lot of, um, we talked about that a little bit Friday night in the small group, that there's, um, there's some of his divine attributes that he gave up, but uh, evidently the knowing the minds of the, you know, people there wasn't one of them. So, you know, that he, he even, it says he entrusted himself in that passage in John. Does anybody know where that is? Um, or he says he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew their, their minds. thought it was 931, but it's not. Um, anyway. Um, but, yeah, that's a great point. He knew the guy wasn't going to do it, but... Um, Yeah, it was all another moral attainment for him. Yeah, a works-based. Yeah, a, another works-based way, which outside of true Christianity, I, I could be wrong, but as far as I understand, outside of true, true Christianity, that's every other religion in the world, right? What must I do? What can I do, perhaps even said there, right? That for the Jews, it's obeying the law, you know, for... Um, even um, some faiths that call themselves, some religions that call themselves Christian, the Catholic, for, as a matter of fact, is the same thing. It's a works-based um, thing. And, um, yeah, there's, that's kind of everybody groping to try and reach God and instead of true Christianity is God coming down among us and... Um, Yeah. That's in the next lesson. Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's all right. I thought we'd get to it today. I'm not doing very good moving through this. Uh, but yeah, I read through it. I read through it two weeks in a row. I hadn't even gotten through my notes from the first go round here. But um, I think at the end of the day, for me, the lessons I've learned um, is is being content, you know, with what God, if I'm just over and over and over in the last five years, this verse, just the Lord just almost daily brings it to my mind. If, if you being evil know how to give good gifts, how much more will your heavenly Father give unto you? So if he loves me so much more than I could ever love my kids, and, you know, that's where he goes on and says, you know, if your child asks for a, what is it, a piece of bread, you wouldn't give him a scorpion or however it goes there, you know. Um, if, if he really loves me that much, then I've got, right now, I've got everything I'm supposed to have, right? And um, am I okay with that, right? So... Well, I guess we'll stop there. Anybody else have any input to...